just how much can we trust our understanding of the world around us? If you've been paying attention, you'll probably guess that I'm going to say not a whole lot. And you'll be right. There are things that lots of us like to believe about the world. People are good. My favorite pizza place does make the best slice. Of course, for your information, Satchel's really does make the best pizza I've ever tasted. Their crust is incredible. We've even talked about some of these in class. For example, self-enhancement theory says that we want to see ourselves as the best possible people we can, whether that's true or not. And self-verification theory says that regardless of what we actually do, we want to see ourselves as consistent people, the same kind of person from moment to moment, day to day, year to year, and behaving in accordance with our personal beliefs. But there is one thing that we want to believe about the world so badly that it has earned its own name in social psychology. According to what we call the just world hypothesis, people want to believe that the world is, well, just, that it's fair, that good things happen to good people and bad things happen to bad people, that we all get what we deserve. Welcome back to Santa Fe Psych. I'm your professor, Ryan Keith. In this episode, we'll be talking about the just world hypothesis, causal attributions, and how it is that we don't really see the world the way it is at all. The just world hypothesis influences deeply how we interpret all sorts of events. Our desire to see the world as fair means that we see our real world heroes, people like uh, historical figures like Abraham Lincoln and Neil Armstrong in much the same way that we see our comic book and movie characters, that they are uh, defined by virtue and strength of character that most of us could never hope to possess. How else, after all, in a fair world, could they be blessed with such greatness? And the same is true of those who are cursed by tragedy. In the wake of very real disasters like Hurricane Katrina, many news outlets bemoan the property and loss of lives of those who chose to stay behind, unlike all of the sensible people who elected to leave. Explanations like this, of course, ignore the fact that the people who are stuck in New Orleans or even in my own hometown during the, the most recent hurricane to uh, hit Panama City that also destroyed lots of property and, and killed a lot of people, that the, the folks who decided to stay didn't really decide at all, that they had no other option. The Just World Hypothesis even cuts to the core of our own justice system, even existing in its name, just being the core of justice, acting as the core motivator behind a, uh, why a person should be punished or not and how, much, how severely they should be punished. Should it be a financial fine? Should they do jail time? And if so, how much? If the world is just, the punishment, after all, should fit the crime, right? But how fair is the world really? And how effective are we at reading these kinds of judgments? One core question behind these kinds of readings, when something happens, is there fault to it? And after all, whose fault is it? If we think about some examples we can think about in a uh, car accident in a state like Florida, when there's a car accident, who, is at, who exactly is at fault or is it a no-fault event? A no-fault event is when a police officer can say, well, it was just an accident. It wasn't really anybody's fault and nobody is responsible for taking care of it. You know how frustrating this can be when you know for a fact that the other party involved is at fault, when they should have to pay for it and your, uh, your uh, automotive insurance premiums shouldn't go up at all. Um, as uh, we look at even more severe crimes, we know that there are differences uh, in terms of how cases are handled for premeditated murder, ones where that murder is planned ahead of time, uh, murder that happens passionately uh, in the moment where it's like emotions just run rampant, or cases of accidental manslaughter. Again, somebody died, but it was an accident. We might even be able to say whose fault it is, but the fact that they didn't plan it, that they didn't mean it, gives them a bit of a break. 
We see this even in the way that children in our culture look at morality as they get older. As children get older, they come to the understanding that uh, fault and intention pays a big part in uh, how we look at morality, that somebody who uh, breaks one plate intentionally deserves a much harsher punishment than someone who breaks 10 plates by accident. As we go through this process, identifying, of course, like morally speaking, uh, credit and blame, but also just looking at what the cause of each occurrence or event in the world is, we go through a process of making what in social psychology we call causal attributions. Causal means to identify the cause of something, and an attribution means to give credit or blame. So a causal attribution means we look at someone's behavior or someone's situation, and we try to identify what, what caused that. Um, we do this all the time. If, if somebody acts short with you, you try to identify whether it's something about them as a person or is it something about the situation in which they find themselves. If a classmate of yours does poorly on a test, is this indicative of who they are as a student, as a person, or was it something about the test? Uh, were they hungry? Were they tired? Did they study the wrong chapter? Uh, we might do it with personal events too. If you go to a wedding, you're at a family member's wedding and someone shows up drunk and gets even drunker. Uh, is there something weird going on with this person or is this characteristic, again, of who they are as a person? If you observe somebody on campus drop their books, uh, is it a clumsy person or was it just an accident? As we go through this process, we like to believe that we can identify effectively what the cause of a situation is. And again, if the world is fair, we expect to see that the cause of the situation in some ways is out of our control, that a good outcome is a result of a good person doing good things and a bad outcome is a result of a bad person doing bad things. But there are a couple of problems as we attempt to interpret the causes of people's behavior, of their situations, and of their outcomes. And uh, these, these problems are, of course, rooted in all of this other social cognition stuff we've talked about so far that we don't really see the world the way that it is. The first of these problems, something we talked about at the beginning of the semester, is the fundamental attribution error. Breaking that term down, we remember that attribution has to do with making causal attributions and identifying the cause of a situation. Where did it come from? The fact that it's an error means that we don't see the world effectively, that we're making a mistake. And the fact that it's fundamental, we know means that it's basic. In a lot of ways, I use the fundamental attribution error, this basic error we make in identifying the cause of behavior, I think of it as the real explanatory reason behind why we need social psychology in the first place. The fundamental attribution error means that as humans, we tend to make dispositional or internal attributions for people's behavior when we should make situational or external attributions. In other words, when we look at a person's situation and where they are or their actions, their behaviors, we tend to imagine that it's a result of who that person is, that it's a part of their personality, a part of their dispositions, rather than their situation. It's not an accident. It's not the world around them. It, it's not a mistake. It's not something unfair. It's who they are. If you think about situations in which um, bad behaviors have taken place, I think about when I get caught off in traffic. I'm traveling along uh, like that part of Archer Road where Archer crosses Tower 75th and it goes from being a four-lane road down to a two-lane road, forcing a bunch of lanes to merge into each other. And of course, you know, I do the responsible thing. I move over into the lane that's going to stay consistent. I do it way ahead of time, use my blinker and all of that. And then somebody has to zoom up alongside of me and force their way in rather than getting in line fairly the way that they should. 
And when somebody does something like this, I can draw a pretty quick conclusion that I know something about what kind of a person that is who did it. When I make my causal attribution, I don't imagine that that person didn't see me. I don't imagine that they're stressed or anxious or that they're uh, dealing with an emergency, that maybe they're like me, uh, dealing with a crying kid in the backseat and they just can't wait to get home so they can unload that kid and stop the crying. Now, I come to the, the very reasonable conclusion that the only explanation for their thoughtless behavior is that this person deep down inside is an asshole. That right there is an example of the fundamental attribution error, because if I look at my own behavior in situations in which I've done that, where I have a better view of everything else going on around me, I'll conclude that it's not that I'm an asshole. It's not that I'm inconsiderate. It's that something kept me, something out of my control, kept me from behaving like a reasonable person. In this way, we can see that people tend to come up with two different explanations for exactly the same kind of situation or behavior. When they're explaining their own behavior, they tend to make situational attributions. We tend to look at the world around us, and if we use common terminology, we would say make excuses. Uh, but when we look at other people's behavior, we tend to make dispositional attributions, or we tend to blame the person. So which one of these explanations is correct? Well, if you're raised in the kind of household and the kind of culture I was, you'll say, well, you know, there's no reason to make excuses. You need to take responsibility. Uh, this is something that's known as the personal responsibility narrative that many of us automatically, because of our cultural experiences, we subscribe to this idea that people need to take responsibility, whatever that means, for the situations in which they find themselves, that they need to not pass the buck and blame something on the situation around them. But as I've learned, and now as you have learned in social psychology, we are situationalists. Rather than embracing the dispositional explanations, we say these are people situations that explain what happens to them. If we look at some of those classic examples, we talked about the Good Samaritan study in which uh, Darley and Batson identified that even the best possible people, uh, people who had been trained uh, committing their lives to uh, bettering others, and in other words, people training to be priests, uh, who were on their way to give a sermon on the Good Samaritan rule, who are being told, like, you need to dig deep inside of yourself and, and think about what a good person you could be, they were no more likely than your average person to stop and help someone in need. In fact, we found that much more powerful than their sense of self was just how much time they had. Similarly, we find that um, uh, similarly we we find that uh, people who are in need of assistance in the real world, uh, some one of the major factors that influences whether or not they're likely to receive assistance is how many people are around. The fewer people there are, the greater the likelihood they're going to get help. Um, Looking at the Yale tetanus study, uh, people were not more likely to get tetanus shots if they were more reasonable people. They were more likely to get tetanus shots if they were given specific steps. Social psychology has given us tons of examples of this. Stanley Milgram's study uh, shows that uh, no matter how good we think we are, we're all capable of doing horrible things to other people. And the Stanford prison experiment similarly demonstrated this idea that the role is more powerful than the person is. When we look at when we look at the evidence, not just what we want to believe, we tend to see that people's situations are what influence who they become. But even if we didn't want to embrace that, let's think about what it really means for someone to deserve blame, right? That with the fundamental attribution error, right, I'm, I'm arguing that we tend to give out credit when it isn't earned and we pass out blame when it isn't deserved. But what does it really mean to earn that credit or deserve that blame? What is it that you are really responsible for? 
Well, think back to your introductory psychology, your developmental psychology courses, and you're likely going to remember something called the nature versus nurture debate. In other words, are you a result of your genes or your environment? Developmental scientists, behavioral scientists, biologists, they give us those two choices. Are you a result of your genes or your environment? And you've likely learned that the real answer is that you're a result of both. If we think about those two things, though, which one of those are you individually responsible for? Are you responsible for the genes that you inherit? Because I'm pretty sure that your parents made that choice for you before you were even conceived, right? They decided to conceive you and combine that genetic material. If it's not that, are you responsible for the environment in which you find yourself? Did you choose your parents? Did you choose the environment in which you're raised? And if we remember that your environment and your genes don't just influence who you are today, but they influence who you were a year, uh, 10 years, 20 years ago, and that those people, you, a year, 10 years, and 20 years ago made choices, and those choices have consequences that make you who you are now, there's no point at which we can really circle what it is you're responsible for. When you were 16, you made choices as a result of the environment and situation. Those choices had consequences that generated new environments for you today, right? In other words, if we look at who people are and how they became that, there really isn't any point where we step away from the situationalist explanation. We tend to see that really it's just your situation. I And I don't want this to feel like I'm just passing the buck and saying that you become who you are because of bad parents and that really it's their fault. Because even your parents who were doing the best that they knew how to do, they were limited by their own environments and their own genes, their own situations. Now, understandably, what I'm talking about here in a lot of ways is privilege, right? That people who are successful had uh, more advantageous upbringings and more advantageous situations, whereas people who are less successful didn't have the same kinds of advantages. Uh, some of the biggest examples uh, that I can pull from uh, we could look at contemporary examples, like if we look at um, honors classes or gifted classes, students in honors and gifted classes tend to come from middle and upper income families, whereas students from mainstream and remedial classes tend to come from lower income backgrounds and lower income neighborhoods. Literally, uh, they had more or fewer resources that put them into certain kinds of situations where then they get greater advantages to help them along even more than they would have already. We tend to see an accrual of, of advantages here. If we want to look over the longer time scale, uh, if you are a millennial or Gen Tech or Gen Z, you've probably gotten sick of the, uh, it's the stereotype of the boomer complaining about how everybody has it easy now, but we're still like destroying the, the world. Uh, we've got like the what the Kleenex industry, the housing industry, the car industry, millennials were, were destroying it all. But we have to remember that the baby boomer generation, my own parents and many of yours, they were raised in one of the strongest economies that's ever existed, um, in which it was easier than it is now to get more money with uh, less education for a lower and then, then pay a lower price for the same kind of stuff, right? And inflation doesn't, doesn't explain just that. Right? The point is to say that when people have a hard time, more often than not, I, I shouldn't say more often than not, I should just say it is when people have a hard time, it's a result of their situations. But the fundamental attribution error says that we tend to blame the person. This doesn't just go for failures. It also, of course, goes for successes. That um, if we use examples of like Neil Armstrong or Abraham Lincoln, it's not that they existed in a special time in which their particular talents could make them successful. It's not that Bill Gates or... Um, 
any of the other uh, tech billionaires were lucky to be in the situation they were in, that these skills and qualities that would have marginalized them before became valuable uh, assets now. No, it's that they're special people who are visionaries. They possess some je ne sais quoi, some special quality that nobody else had. Right. Um, but when we look at... Uh, uh, when we look at exceptions, right, because when I talk, for example, about gifted and mainstream classes, something that very quickly happens when I'm talking with people is they jump to exceptions, right? We want to disprove the rule and say, well, there was a student of color in this gifted class or there was a rich person who lost all their money. In situations like that, it doesn't invalidate the rule. We're simply not seeing the whole person. I, it's true that there are, you know, many low-income individuals who end up finding success and successful people who fall, but it's a lot easier to go from wealthy to poor than from poor to wealthy. And when we see somebody who comes from a low-income background and are a high-income, uh, what we'd call it like a high-income strata, high socioeconomic status, we have to ask ourselves, you know, not to say like that this rule is wrong, but rather to say, what are the advantages that we're not seeing? What did they look into that everybody else around them so the fundamental attribution error says that we tend to give credit and claim to the individual person, but this isn't true always. See, there's something that we all tend to fall prey to called motivated reasoning. And motivated reasoning, we've already talked about, not under that specific name, but it says that rather than thinking reasonably about the world, we tend to uh, be motivated to see it in particular ways. When we talked about confirmation bias and belief persistence, we tend to use motivated reasoning to seek out evidence that supports beliefs that we really like and that are important to us, and that when somebody threatens those beliefs, we tend to stick to our guns. This is the same when we make attributions about why other people end up where they are. If these are in uh, situations where we're forced to make upward social comparisons, we're forced to compare ourselves to their success, uh, we tend to switch the way that we explain it. When we feel like we have failed compared to other people, we no longer make dispositional attributions. Now, all of a sudden, they're situational ones. When it comes to ourselves, we tend to make situational attributions anyway, but it's funny because it's the one situation where we make situational attributions for other people. When you take a test and everybody else does well on the test and you do poorly, it's because it's unfair that the professor didn't like you. You didn't have time to study because uh, somebody kept you up all night. Whereas if it had been the other way around is that you tend, you deserve to do well. If I think about even my own self, right? When I have a successful career compared with other people, there are a lot of other instructors who don't secure the kind of position I have. That's a, a really great job to be in. I want to imagine that there is something special about me that deserves to be where I am. But when I uh, appeal for uh, some sort of additional stipend, when I look for a position where I would get extra prestige, I get cheated out of those positions, right? If I don't get them, it's not my fault. It's somebody else's fault. Again, we got to remember that this is not really about, um, this is not really about whether it should be situational or dispositional and which one is correct. Social psychologists, we know that this is a situational explanation, that it's the, not the person who is at fault or, uh, who deserves the credit. But this tendency for us to make situational attributions when we're looking at our failures and other people's successes, this is known as the self-serving attributional bias, or we tend to make these kinds of self-serving attributions. We're making attributions that are good for us, that help us feel good about ourselves, that in the end, right, we're using that confirmation bias, we're employing belief persistence, and we are serving the uh, self-enhancement theory by making attributions that make us feel as good as possible about ourselves. It's not our fault when we do poorly, but we absolutely deserve the credit when we do well. So what does all this mean? Why does it 
matter, right? Why does the just world hypothesis matter? Why shouldn't we just be allowed to believe in a just and fair world? Well, that's because we imagine the world is fair, but this has unfortunate consequences for how we treat the people around us. If we think, for example, about, you know, when you're on I-75 and you take one of those exits and you see that person standing on the street corner, right? And it's it's never the same person, but it might as well be, right? Some uh, guy with dirty matted hair and, and grimy features and wearing his grummy, grummy clothes with a greasy sign. And that sign says something like, uh, uh, American vet, uh, anything helps, God bless. Uh, in a lot of ways, your reaction to that person is going to be influenced by how you think they ended up there. Uh, if you experience something similar and can identify with that situation, you're more likely to do something to want to help that person out. But if on the other hand, uh, you're making a downward social comparison and you're making a dispositional attribution, you're more likely to do something like uh, roll up your window, lock the windows, uh, avoid making eye contact, not share any money. Because what's our big fear about what that person's going to do with that money? Well, if you're like most people, your biggest fear is that they're going to spend it on drugs, right? But why? Why would that homeless person be more likely to spend that money on drugs or alcohol than your average person? Again, we'll jump to what we've seen on the news, what we've read in the news, or just what feels like common sense, that that's why they're homeless, right? That they end up homeless, they end up in this horribly poverty-stricken situation because they deserve it, because they made choices that you wouldn't have made, that you're successful because you sacrificed, because you didn't allow yourself to end up in the kind of situation that they did, right? That we can feel self-righteous when looking at someone else's misfortune, that they did something to deserve being there. Um, when we see people treated unfairly by the system this way, we don't see it as being treated unfairly. That even when we know that the vast majority of homeless individuals suffer from mental illness, that this person might be a combat veteran not suffering from a visible uh, injury, but from post-traumatic stress disorder, we're going to work really hard and make use of um, social creativity to try to explain why they're in that situation. That again, it's not that they're misserved. It's not that the VA is this labyrinthine organization that fails to support the majority of the people it should is that they have no excuse for not using the Malcolm Randall VA that's right down the street, that they deserve to be homeless because they spend their money on drugs and booze. And if they could only clean up and take things seriously, then they'd finally be successful. This might not be the situation that uh, you're in. It might not be the example you think of. But if you take a minute and think about the unfortunate people you encounter, whether they're uh, classmates or uh, friends of family members or even your own family members, chances are, if you're like me and you're willing to be honest with yourself, there's at least one person you know who has been dealt a really bad hand, but we tend to look for reasons to blame that person. And as a result, we now have an explanation for why we shouldn't help them. This happens even when we think more generally about how the world works. Um, when uh, I, I was talking to uh, my brother about uh, somebody he knew who got their house broken into, right? And, and we both had to pause and kind of laugh about the phrasing there that they got their house broken into. They did something to deserve it, right? What, what did they do? Did they uh, buy a big TV that they, they then took in there? Everyone else saw it and saw it and knew that they were an easy mark, that they parked a car and it looks like that in a neighborhood like this, that they had the audacity to want to afford nice things, right? Uh, when we think about the most obvious examples of victim blaming or victim shaming, that when somebody suffers from sexual assault, we 
pause at blaming the perpetrator that rather than blaming the person who committed this crime, we tend to look for explanations and say, well, I've never suffered from sexual assault because I didn't dress like that, that I wasn't where I shouldn't have been. When in fact, people who suffer from these kinds of assaults, you know, oftentimes are, are minors assaulted by people that they know doing absolutely nothing to ask for it. That even when we talk about adults who are dressed how they want in places that they want to be doing what they want to do, there's nothing that they are doing that makes them responsible for the criminal actions of other people. Right? When we look at social, specific social psychology findings, uh, we can look at statistics and see that in a lot of ways, um, there are uh, ways in which the, the world is not fair, but we tend to perpetuate this idea of fairness. That, for example, um, wealthier Americans, uh, you would think if the world was fair, would donate more money than the rest of us uh, to even voluntarily donate more money than the rest of us to causes like natural disasters, right? Or uh, helping with illness or um, remedy climate change. And in fact, uh, we do tend to see this, that wealthy Americans, uh, wealthy people worldwide donate far more money than everybody else does, but that this is a much smaller proportion of their income, that chances are you donate more money to your local church or local charity organizations annually than these people do, again, as a percentage of your income. Um, similarly, in wealthy areas, we tend to see that panhandlers receive smaller donations. Social psychology studies have found that uh, placing fake panhandlers, what we call a confederate outside a church, uh, the amount of money they receive depends heavily on the income of the people who attend that church, and the people in poor churches tend to donate far more money. And that cognitively, this all ties in that when showing pictures of uh, people making facial expressions to participants, we tend to find that if someone is reminded that they're relatively successful and wealthy before looking at the picture, they have a harder time identifying the person's facial expression. In other words, feeling wealthy, feeling powerful, making downward social comparisons makes it harder to identify with the plight of others makes it harder to identify with their situations, with the way that they're feeling. We are literally less empathic when we feel successful, that we believe we deserve to be there and that other people deserve to be where they are. But we are quick to all be social psychologists when we feel that the world has been unfair to us. So in exploring like why, not why privilege happens, but why people who are in positions of privilege are so resistant to seeing it, we tend to see that um, cognitive elements like the fundamental attribution error, the self-serving attributional bias, the just world hypothesis, not to mention confirmation bias, belief persistence, the overconfidence bias, and the self-enhancement theory all explain why it is we see what we see. I know this was a lot of information all in a short bit, but there's not a whole lot else to this week. So I hope this clarifies a bit of what you were reading in this week's chapter. Um, next week, look for more uh, videos and podcasts to help illustrate some of the cool stuff we'll be talking about. In the meantime, if you have questions, reach out to me during office hours or via Canvas and messages and email. And I look forward to seeing you guys online.